Let's bow together. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the privilege we have to sing your praises, uh, declare your excellencies, and exalt your name together. Father, I pray as we look into your word that you would grant us wisdom into what you intended, that we would interpret it rightly and that we would apply it rightly and that we would do what you desire us to do by your power and strength. Lord, bless your word as it goes forth. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Well, in the very last book of the Old Testament, uh, chapter 3, verse 18, uh, God says that you'll be able to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked by one thing, whether they serve the Lord or they do not. When we were saved, we were saved to give up our lives and to gain everything in Christ, but to give up that which was not eternal, that which was uh, uh, hindering us, that which was uh, pulling us down into the pit of hell through our own decisions. We were called to confess our sin, to repent, to turn to Jesus Christ, to to die to ourselves and to live to God in Christ. And when we do that, we become servants of the living God. We serve him. If you were a believer, you are a servant of the living God. Now the question would be, are you a good servant or are you a bad servant? Are you a faithful slave or an unfaithful slave? So if you've been saved, that's what God has called us to do. He's called us to give up everything to have no uh, uh, strings attached uh, to where we live, to where we go to church, to whatever it might be. We, yet we are willing, whatever, Lord, your will is, we will do it. You see, and that's uh, what the mindset of those in whom Christ is working mightily uh, as they're in union with him. Except sometimes there are those who become servants, but sin gets in the way and they stick to their own desires and their own ways and suffer for it and do not receive the great blessing of serving a great God where he wants them to be. Yeah, but what we'll see today is that uh, when there are those who desire to serve the Lord, there is opposition and there is difficulty and that difficulty can be discouraging. It can be uh, that which hinders us, those who really want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and serve him wholeheartedly. Yet today we're going to see how leaders in the body of Christ are to motivate his servants, the Lord's servants, to do what he desires them to do. You see, there are times where we need to be motivated by the word of God through God's people to do what he wants us to do. Now, we've been studying the book of Nehemiah, and uh, you'll remember that Nehemiah comes in a period in which after the Jews had been exiled, uh, they had been exiled and they began to come back. The first return was uh, with Zerubbabel and those guys building the temple, the foundation. They were delayed through difficulties and the wrong priorities, but then they eventually got it built. The second returned through uh, Ezra about 13 years before we have Nehemiah in which they were to go back, rebuild Jerusalem. But unfortunately, through the bad guys, the king gave a stop order to the building and there was some difficulty there, as we'll see today, opposition. And then we have the third return, which involves Nehemiah. Nehemiah. 
And so we are in this portion in Nehemiah in which uh, Nehemiah is now going to return to Jerusalem. And he's going to have some come with him. You might remember in the past few weeks of our study of Nehemiah that Nehemiah is or was the cupbearer to the king, a very high position, a very high official, uh, extremely high in the Persian Empire, the world's superpower of the day. And in chapter 1, he had heard information concerning the Jews in Judah, those who had gone back to serve the Lord. You see, it was a comfy deal, actually, in Persia. There wasn't really much persecution, and Jews were staying. It was a comfy deal. But there were those who had been led by the Lord on their heart to serve who had gone back, as we'll see. And Nehemiah has that same heart, as we'll say. And so then he hears about the Jews in Jerusalem and uh, the, the walls of Jerusalem and the gates. And he's greatly troubled because God's people are, 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 are greatly uh, discouraged. It's a great evil that has come upon them and he is concerned about them. And we saw that Nehemiah was a godly man who cares about God's work and God's people. And so then he goes to praying, and he, and he mourns, first of all, and he's driven to his knees to pray for his fellow servants in Jerusalem. And it's about four to five months that he is praying, and by the end of his prayer, which we see in the end of chapter 1, it's apparent that God has laid on his heart that he's the one that God wants to use to bring about the resolution to the very uh, problem that he is grieving over concerning the sons of Israel. Now, it's an impossible situation for Nehemiah because he's in an important position and the, the king's probably not going to say, yeah, sure, go ahead and take four years off or whatever it might be. He's not going to do that, basically, but God uh, is the one in whom the king's heart channels just like water through his hand. God can do anything. There's nothing that is impossible for God. And Nehemiah prays to God in chapter 1. He acknowledges that God is above. He's supreme. He's a great God and that uh, there's nothing impossible for him in that context. And within that prayer, we see him exalting the Lord and humbling himself and then praying for God's hand to be favorable to him when he would go before the king, for he was the cupbearer of the king. So we have an impossible situation. So he intercedes for his people. He's persistent. He doesn't give up. And he confesses the sin that is related to his the difficulty that the Israelites are in. And then he comes specifically reminding the Lord of his promises, and then he makes his specific request. And then last week we saw, or the week before, we saw Nehemiah's tremendous example. Uh, he is a man who patiently waited on the Lord. He was a man who's walking with the Lord. He is a man who was wisely ready and prepared when the Lord would open the doors to which he was praying for when they came. And Nehemiah prayerfully and wisely and respectfully made his request before the king to go to Jerusalem for a period of time. And he ought to, to, to rebuild uh, uh, the, the Jerusalem and he asked for letters for his passage and letters for wood from the king's forest, uh, from the guy that runs it, ASAP. And the king granted his request. And Nehemiah explains why. He says in verse 8, the very end, And the king granted them because the good hand of my God was on me. You know, when you are praying and you are dependent and you know it's not you, when God answers that prayer, you don't give yourself or anyone else glory. You give God the glory. And Nehemiah did that. He's a man of faith and a tremendous example. And it's from there, we're going to see today through Nehemiah's example of godly leadership, one man, godly leadership here, how our leaders in the body of Christ are to motivate 
God's servants to do his work, or God's maybe distracted or dejected or discouraged servants uh, how to do and how to be about his work. Please turn to Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 9 through 20. 9 through 20. Verse 9, Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, and when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and I was there three days, and I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and onto the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed by the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up uh, by night, so I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate and returned again and returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. Nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did this, who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in. That Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned with by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, right or memorial, in Jerusalem. So then, how are we to, how are godly leaders to motivate God's servants to do his work? How are they to do so? Now, I just want to say one thing in advance before we get to our passage. This passage is about motivating those who desire to do God's work, those who are not in sin. These Israelites here had left to do God's work. They had given up everything, their cushy lives in Persia, and they had gone to a difficult situation. They weren't those who didn't want to do it, who are following their own desires or their own will, unwilling to give up this life, by the way. They weren't those people. But they had been discouraged. They had been discouraged by the situation. The king had put a stop work on it. There was these bad guys, which we'll see here, continually thwarting and, and putting them down and causing them to be a reproach. So they desired to serve the Lord. And, and frankly, the task was unattainable in light of his, the king's edict. So this passage applies to those who want to follow the Lord, who are willing to serve the Lord no matter where and what he wants you to do. And that's where you've got to get in your life. You've got to be willing to say, 
It doesn't matter. I'll do whatever you want, wherever you want, Lord Jesus. I trust you. And these people were those people, and they had left their place to go to Jerusalem. So then, God is faithful to bring a leader to encourage them. God is faithful to come and bring help that Nehemiah had prayed about. So our passage is about how Nehemiah uses, God uses Nehemiah as a leader to motivate his willing servants to do his work, his work. So these principles, again, will not apply to you if you are not willing, if you're not willing. And leaders, the, the, the issue with unwilling believers is not, is not an issue of, uh, it's, it's really an issue of sin. It's an issue of selfishness that needs to be dealt with first. It's not motivating them to be about God's work. And there are a lot of people, a lot of leaders in the church these days, motivating people who are in sin to do God's work, rather than those who have wholeheartedly given over their lives. And that happens over and over again. You start to take it back, you give it back over. Lord, no, uh, it's, it's yours. It's yours. So then, if you're a leader, this passage applies to you directly. If you are a servant, it applies to you directly also, because you're going to be led. And it also applies secondarily to those who would be leading uh, maybe in your family and those who want to do what they want to do. They want to do the right thing, but how do I lead them? How do I motivate them righteously to do what is right? Or whatever it might be, it applies to those circumstances also secondarily. So then how are godly leaders to motivate God's servants to do his work? Well, first of all, we're going to see that the leader must firstly personally step out first. Step out first, where the Lord is truly leading. You know, we saw after much prayer, Nehemiah, led by the Lord to help these Jews, stepped out in faith before he even came upon to redirect them and to help them. Remember what we saw last week? After much prayer, four to five months actually, Nehemiah had come to realize that God was going to use him to be the one to lead these Jews to do and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the gates. And yes, God's good hand was on uh, Nehemiah. And, God, and, and even though he knew the king would probably, probably not let him go, God's hand was upon him, and he did let him go. Nehemiah was waiting on the Lord, but he also was walking with the Lord. Look at what we saw here in chapter 2, verse 1. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took... And I took um, up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very, very much afraid. You remember the king, he was very observant. And he saw Nehemiah's sadness that had not shown before. And you might remember, by law, you're not allowed to be sad in front of the king. You've got to put on a happy face. Otherwise, you could be killed. You could be killed. And so obviously the heaviness of what was on Nehemiah's heart, including the fact that he felt this was the day to talk to him, had really overcome him, and he was sad in the presence. And when the king noticed it, he was very much afraid, very much afraid. But he was also prepared and ready and trusting the Lord. And he said, and the king had said to him, and, they, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed with fire? And we, we saw last time that Nehemiah was very wise. He doesn't mention Jerusalem, which would have been a thorn in the king's ears in a sense. He mentions it in a different, in a different way, uh, very respectful, very wise. And the king, he didn't miss a beat. He's a very wise king here in a sense, earthly sense, 
The king said to me, what would be your request? He figured it out. And what did Nehemiah do? I love this. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah is a man walking with the Lord. Things are coming upon him. He's praying. Lips up those prayers. Lord, give me wisdom. Grant me help. Help me with my words. Help me to say the right thing. Whatever it might be. He's walking with the Lord. And we need to be that way when we hear things. We're not, we're not sure what's going to happen, what's going to be said. When it's said, we need to be ready to lift up our prayers to the Lord. And we should be walking with him doing so. And so then, uh, we see here that he... He prayed to the God of heaven. And then notice what he says here. And I said to the king, if it please the king, if, and if your servant has found favor before you, uh, this wouldn't be working if Nehemiah was a lazy servant, right? If Nehemiah wasn't a good employee. And, I, and I'm so sad when I see Christians who are really not good employees. They're complaining about their bosses. They're not diligent in their work. They just go there and do the minimal amount to get out. That's not doing your work hardly unto the Lord. That's doing a little work unto yourself so you can get out of there. That's not good. But Nehemiah was a godly man. He was a godly man. He was diligent. And he said here, if I found favor, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. There's the request. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? Nehemiah was obviously ready. He was ready for the response. So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. He said, this is how long, right? Definite time. He was ready. And I said to the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of Judah, or governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass until I come to Judah. And let a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, and a letter, excuse me, to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And what was the king's response? Uh, that's the king's response. And the king granted them to me. And what was Nehemiah's understanding? Because the good hand of my God was upon me. So Nehemiah understood God was leading him and he was opening doors. And by faith, he stepped out first. He didn't ask others to trust the Lord in an area in which he was not personally trusting the Lord in already. And folks, if, if, you, if you're a leader in the body of Christ, if you're asking others to serve the Lord in certain manners and you are not willing and able to do that yourself, you're not trusting the Lord that's not like Nehemiah. Nehemiah was trusting in the Lord, stepping out by faith, and God's good hand was on him. So how are leaders to motivate God's willing servants, yet discouraged, to a difficult or overwhelming task? First of all, you need to have faith in the Lord. You need to be trusting him, and you need to step out in faith personally according to God's will. You've got to do it yourself, Right? Now notice, uh, the next thing we're going to see as you step out, we need to expect opposition. Expect opposition. Indeed, it was a great evil, as we will see, to Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite when they heard of Nehemiah's coming to help. They didn't know exactly what was going on, because Nehemiah will say later on, I haven't told anybody what the Lord's put on my heart, but he knew they were coming to help in some fashion. Okay, The bad guys. Verse 9, here's our passage. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Very interesting. 
So verse 9, Nehemiah is heavy into the trip from Susa in Persia uh, to Jerusalem. So take about two months. It's a big trip, okay? And he says he came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river. That would be the Euphrates River. And he remember, he wisely had asked the king for letters. And he's obviously giving them those letters, the king's letters. That gives him permission to, to pass through, to pass through. And it says here, then, uh, and, and I gave them the king's letters. He, he was prepared. Praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord. He's doing his due diligence. Doing his due diligence. Then notice this statement in the end of 9. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. That's a little unusual. That's a little unusual. And I believe it points to the distinct possibility that the king had appointed him the governor of Judah. I believe that's what had happened. That's quite possible. Indeed, in chapter 5, verse 14, this is before the wall's done, 52 days, it's before it's done. Chapter 5, uh, verse 15, notice what it's, I'll read it, verse 14. Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor, the wall hasn't even been finished yet, it's 52 days to get it done, this is during that time, in the land of Judah, that from the 20th year to the 32nd year of the king Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I or my kinsmen had eaten the governor's food allowance. So it's apparent that the, he had probably been appointed as the governor of Judah, the governor of Judah. So he's got a army group, he's got protection there, and he's got horsemen. He's got horsemen. So he's got something that would be noticed uh, by the people who are ruling the area for, for under Persia. They would know something's going on. Here's a guy coming. We heard uh, we heard the word. He's got letters. He's approved. He's got uh, got army guys. He's got the guys protecting him. He's got horsemen. He's coming. So uh, they've heard it, but they don't know the reason, the exact reason, okay? They know the basic reason, which everyone knows, but the exact reason what Nehemiah is going to do, what God has put on his heart. He hasn't revealed that yet. And notice what happens, verse 10. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. The term very displeasing could be translated, it was a great evil. It was a great evil to them. So we have these two people named here, Sanballat and Tobiah. And we're going to see they're basically government officials. And when they hear about Nehemiah, he's not there yet, they hear about his coming. It was a great evil to them that somebody would come to seek the welfare of Israel. That's all they know about it. But that's, and it's a great evil to them. It's a great evil to them. Now, in our study um, of Nehemiah, we here now begin to see the opposition arise. And the reality is there are enemies of Nehemiah and the Jews. And who are these enemies? Uh, We see them here because it was a great evil to them that someone came to help. Indeed, we'll see later on their opposition introduced directly. Let's look at that, uh, chapter 2, verse 19. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Hey, they're going to start their opposition now. They're going to pull that card, as we'll see. You know, We're going to call the king and say, you're rebelling against him. That's worthy of death, by the way. Are you rebelling against the king? Then look down chapter 4. We see their, their uh, wickedness increasing. Now it came about when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became 
furious. Chapter 4, verse 1. Very angry and mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they... Are they going to restore for the, store it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from dusty rubble, even the burnt ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and said, even what they were building, if a fox should jump on it, it he would break their stone wall down. Hear, O oh, our God, how we are being, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the builders. This is a serious uh, offense, sin, to demoralize God's people when they're about God's business. And the evil uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, and these guys are doing that. And look at later on, verse 7 of chapter 4. Now it came about when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashadites, Ashadites heard that there were heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. It says there, and all of them conspired together to come and fight, fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. You get a disturbance, oh, Nehemiah's not doing well, Uh, he's not holding the Jews down, Uh, not a good governor, take him out, right? Um, But we prayed to our God, and because... Of them, we set up our guard against them day and night. How about that? And then look down in verse 11. And our enemies said, they're enemies. They are enemies. We do have enemies, by the way, in the church. They come in the form of flesh, but we know Satan is our enemy, right? Our, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. We have enemies, but our battle is against uh, the spiritual force, Satan, and his, and his, and his, his cohorts. Therefore, we don't fight uh, uh, the battle as if the enemies are what we are going against. We fight a spiritual battle by faith in Christ, as we will see. He said here, our enemies said they will not know and see us until we come upon them and, and come upon them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. Wow, they really want to stop it. And it came out when the Jews that lived near them came and told us ten times they will come against us every place where you may turn. Then look down in chapter 6. Now it came about when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Gershom the Arab. There you go. There's your guys. And the rest of our what? Enemies. Enemies. That I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. That Sanballat, Gershom, sent a message saying, come to me, let us meet together. He's going to try to uh, woo him to come to him, basically to, to, to take him out. Um and you look down to verse 9, it says, For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking we will become discouraged with the work, and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. And one other passage, look at uh, verse 13 in chapter 6. This was a bad uh, guy that got hired, hired, um, bad prophet. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly in sin so that they might have an evil report that they could reproach me. Remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs, and also uh, Noadiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who, did, who were trying to frighten me. They even used the religious system to try and frighten him. So then, these guys are enemies. 
These guys are enemies, and they are introduced in our passage here. When they hear about it, it was a great evil to them that someone would help the Jews. That someone would help the Jews. Now, at this point, let's take a look at these guys back here. You have Sanballat uh, and Tobiah, right? Um, who are these guys? Who are these guys? Now, you'll have uh, Gershom, the Arab motion mentioned, and then some Arab, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdites also mentioned later on as part of that group of enemies, those who are of evil kindred spirit with uh, Sanballat and Tobiah. But who are these two guys mentioned in our passage? Well, first of all, Sanballat the Horonite, uh, the name Sanballat in Akkadian means sin has given life. That's interesting. Uh, some say it means bramble bush or, or enemy in secret. Well, he certainly wasn't enemy in secret, by the way. That's interesting also. But uh, in Hebrew, it simply means strength. It means strength. That's probably what his name meant. And notice it speaks of him three times in, in Nehemiah as Sanballat the Horonite. The Horonite. Uh, twice in chapter 2 and once in chapter 13. And then in the rest of the time, he's just mentioned as Sanballat. So what do we know about this guy? Well, first of all, he is the Horonite. Well, that could be a reference to the area of Beth Horan, which is a town in Ephraim. But more likely, it is a reference to Horanaim, which is in Moab, which is in Moab. Uh, that would make him a Moabite, a Moabite. In chapter 13, we know about Sanballat, that when, that when Elisha Babs, one of Elisha Babs, uh, the high priest's grandsons, sinned and intermarried uh, one of Sanballat's daughters. There's a problem there. You'll see that. And Nehemiah is going to expose that in chapter 13. It's very clear also that, uh, Nehemiah, that in Nehemiah, that Sanballat was some type of official holding high office. Some say he was the governor of Samaria, but some say maybe that was his son, Sanballat, that was officially that, not sure. But he held an official position. Now, the Samaritans were a mix of Jews and Assyrians from their first capture. That's what they were. They were mixed blood. And the Jews uh, didn't recognize them as brothers and sisters. They hated them, right? Remember the good Samaritan? They hated them. So it's obvious here in our book, no matter what he is, that he has a lot of power. He's a powerful official. Later on, Nehemiah is going to say the officials. He's going to say it twice. He's going to say it in relationship to the officials of those who are rebuilding and the officials that are not part of that. Okay, And that's how he gets kind of confusing. But it speaks of leaders or rulers. That's the word. So you got Sanballat. He's, a, he's the head guy. He's the head bad guy. And he's got power. He's got power. And his little sidekick, Tobias, got power too because he can write letters and defame uh, Nehemiah and cause problems, right? And we'll see that later on. So who is this guy, his cohort, Tobiah, the Ammonite official? Well, it's interesting. The term Tobiah, the name means Yah is my God. That's a short shortening for Yahweh. The I am is my God. That's his name. It's a good name. The I am is my God. That's a great name, right? But as we'll see, he is an enemy of God uh, because he is an enemy of God's people, as we'll see in Nehemiah. But yet he does and is one who infiltrates the Jews religiously, probably a false brother. Okay. Later on in chapter 13, we'll see Elishib, Elishib, not Elishabab, I think I said that earlier. Elishib, the high priest, did evil, literally, for Tobiah. And he gave Tobiah a space in the temple area to hang out and live. Not a good thing. Nehemiah had to kick him out and all his goods, by the way, and he does that in chapter 13. 
So then, with his name and his association with the temple, you'd think, hey, this is a good guy. But he is a very bad guy. He is a very bad guy. And indeed to it, he is referred in this context as one of the enemies. One of the enemies. Now, do you notice also he is Tobiah the Ammonite? The Ammonite. The Moabites and the Ammonites uh, were the offspring of Lot's sin. And they were continual thorns in the side of Israel. And he is an Ammonite official or literally servant. So he's some type of an Ammonite uh, official in the government, in a sense. We'll see he has power also. But we see from Scripture that the the Moabites and the Ammonites seem to be the head of all those who hate the Lord and hate his people. Turn to Psalm 83. We see this. Psalm 83. This guy's a sneaky Ammonite official, by the way. He's pretending. Psalm 83. A song, a psalm of Asap. O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent and do not be still. For behold, thine enemies make an uproar. The psalmist knew they were God's enemies first and foremost, okay? And that means they're led by Satan, right? In his domain, doing his will, right? Those who hate thee have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against thy people, and they conspire against thy treasured ones. They have said, come, let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel may be be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind against thee, and do they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, uh, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria has joined with them. They have become help to the children of Lot. That would be the Ammonites and the Moabites. Selah. So then, we have these two government officials with high power, Sanballat and Tobias, introduced back in our passage, verse 10. Nehemiah chapter 2. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, that's about Nehemiah's on his way, um, it was very displeasing or a great evil that someone would come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. These are enemies. And again, I mention this, you know, although enemies uh, manifest in human flesh, uh, our ultimate enemy is Satan. Uh, and because of Satan, we will be hated because uh, those in his domain hate Christ, and thus they will hate us. As uh, the Lord Jesus said, if the world hates you, now Satan's the god of this world, by the way, uh, know it has hated me before it hated you, John fifteen eighteen. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. The Lord Jesus understood and shared that the world's going to hate you. We need to expect it. Uh, we know from Second Thessalonians chapter 3 that uh, there are evil men and uh, that were out after Paul. Paul prayed, wanted prayer for protection, and the evil one was behind that, Second Thessalonians chapter 3. We know Satan's servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. We see that in 2 Corinthians 11. But it is ultimately Satan. And the way we deal and deal with our enemies is to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. 
uh, to be sober spirit, to be on the alert, because our adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in the faith, knowing the truth that relates to your circumstance from Scripture. So then you've got these bad guys here, and they are held captive by Satan to do his will, like we see in Second Timothy chapter 2. They are the enemies of Nehemiah, the Jews, and those who desire the Jews who desire to serve the Lord. And they are introduced here, and they're upset. And they're upset. Now, this is important because evidently, uh, when they hear things, they act upon them. And we're going to see Nehemiah is very wise in a minute in terms of what he does and the information he lets out concerning the ministry that God has him doing. So remember, we have an enemy, Satan, and we're going to face opposition. If you want to serve the Lord, you're going to have trouble. Right? Remember that. Yet greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Than he who is in the world. So then, uh, we know we'll suffer for righteousness' sake, doing what is right. Uh, we'll be persecuted. We know those things. Uh, we know that. But yet, as Paul mentioned, he says, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed. And he does, and he will, if you trust him. If you trust him. So how are God's leaders to motivate willing yet discouraged servants to be about very difficult or overwhelming tasks? First of all, expect opposition. Well, first of all, you need to be personally yourself uh, trusting the Lord and exhibiting faith in those contexts and stepping out in that. Secondly, you need to expect opposition. But notice here, third, we need to wisely uh, uh, analyze the specific needs in light of that opposition. In light of that opposition. Indeed, Nehemiah secretly inspected the walls, being careful not to trip off, chip off his enemies, that they might not discourage the people before he could come to them and encourage them to join in this good work again. Verse 11, so I came to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. He made it. He's there now. He made it. And guess what? Nehemiah doesn't jump into the work. He doesn't pull his hammer out right away. He doesn't do it. And he hasn't told anyone, as we will see, what the Lord has put on his heart. He hasn't told anyone. Notice what he does next. And I rose at night, I and a few men with me, and I did not tell anyone what God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. We're going to see there is a time for cautiousness and secrecy in the Lord. There is a time for that. There's a time for wisdom. The Lord doesn't tell us everything. He gives us what he wants us to know. He gives us and reveals what he wants us to know. So he says here, what is, he says, uh, putting in my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal which I was riding. So I went out by night, at, went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and onto the, the refuse, refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and the gates which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place, there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered at the valley gate again and returned. And the officers did not know where I'd gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the, offi the officials, excuse me, I said that's officers earlier, and officials, uh, officials or the rest who did the work. So then we have an example of godly wisdom here in the context of faith. Notice he says, I did not tell anyone what God was putting on my mind to do for Jerusalem. 
Nehemiah is tight-lipped. He has not shared specifically what God has put on his heart to do for Jerusalem. He told no one. And he goes on this secret tour at night of the walls. He goes on a secret tour. Verse 12, and I rose at night and a few, a few men. I did not tell anyone what God was putting on my mind to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out by night by the valley gate. It's secretive, being secretive. A valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the ref, refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. So Nehemiah exits the city proper of Jerusalem through the valley gate, and he comes down on the west side, uh, and traveling south, inspecting the walls in the direction of the dragon's well, and the dung gate or refuse gate on the bottom of the city was inspecting the walls, which were broken down and consumed by fire. And he is on an inspection tour. He's on an inspection tour, but it's secret. Verse 14, Then I passed on to the fountain gate, the king's pool, but there was no place uh, no place for my mount to pass. So he's coming, he had gone, he had gone down south and east, and now he's going to go northbound. He's going to go northbound around the, around the walls. And there's much rubble. The donkey can't get through. There's much rubble from the, from the walls. And so he goes on foot and he inspects the wall and then he entered through the valley gate again and returned. Verse 13. So I went up by night in, by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. Now there's a couple of things here that are really important. First of all, Nehemiah is surveying for himself what needs to be done. You need to know what needs to be done in the context of ministry, what God is doing. And now you have to survey, obviously, through the word of God in light of the body of Christ and apply that across the body of Christ to see what needs to be done. So he's inspecting. He's inspecting. And Nehemiah is doing his due diligence before he goes to the people. He's going to see what needs to be done personally. He's going to have a personal understanding of it before he comes and talks to the people. And notice there's another thing that is so important, and I mentioned this earlier, but Nehemiah did not tell anyone what the Lord was putting on his heart. And I arose at night, I and a few men with me, and I did not tell anyone, that's verse 12, what the Lord was putting in my mind to do for Jerusalem. And then look at verse 16. This is the result. And the officials, uh, that's the officials of like Sanballat, Tobias, all those guys, those rulers, that's the bad guys. Did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor, this is secondary, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and then these are the Jewish officials, by the way, um, and the rest of those who did the work. So first of all, he didn't let the bad guys know, Sanballat, Tobias, and those others. He didn't want his enemies to know what he's doing. But he also had not yet told the people who would do the work what he is doing. Now, why wouldn't he have done that? Why wouldn't he, when he first got there, said, let's gather around, I'm here, this is why I'm here to help you. Uh, I want to talk to you about this. Why didn't he do it? I understand him not telling the unbelieving enemies what the Lord is putting on his heart, not letting them know. I understand that. But why would he not tell the people? Well, here, Nehemiah was exhibiting great wisdom leaders can learn from and we can learn from, by the way. You see, sometimes it's not wise to share everything with everybody, uh, even with those who eventually you will share it with. Because he says, as not yet. He was planning on doing so, okay? 
because it would have, in this context, given the enemy an opportunity to thwart the conversation that Nehemiah would have with the Jews to encourage them to join the work. And he is being wise not to do so. You see, if they had heard about this, and then they would have tried certainly to discourage the Jews to not agree to do the work, to not enter into it, they would have used their tactics, which we see throughout here, to stop them from even agreeing to start back on the work. And folks, it is not sin not to share things at times. The Lord doesn't tell us everything. He's not being deceptive or sinful. God is righteous. Nehemiah trusted the Lord and he was being wise. He was careful not to tip off the enemies. We know loose lips sink ships. You know that from the, from the military context, right? He was careful. And there are believers who might talk and he understood that and he didn't tell them. Careful not to tell the enemies and also the people. And folks, I personally understand this very well. As the Lord began to lay on my heart coming here to do this work here in South Carolina, I felt the Lord wanted to keep it quiet because we had so many enemies who were trying to discourage so many people. I understood that. And I knew that before people had made a commitment to come here that people could get in and mess that up. And therefore, I wanted to keep it tight-lipped. And that's one of the reasons I did so. You might remember me saying, hey, don't let it out of these people. Don't share it, right? And we even had people here who didn't share. People were probing. There were believers, not the bad guys, but had association with the bad guys. And they were probing people who were moved here. Why are you going? Where are you going? Where are you at? They wanted to know the information. And they didn't tell them. And they treated them as if they were sinning, by the way. And that's not true because they were being wise. They were following the instruction that I believe the Lord wanted us to have here so that people would not be discouraged. It's wise not to share with everybody at times, but there will be a time when we share. And that's part of what's behind what I was doing here in this church and not relaying it and letting it out till a certain point where God had really laid forth clearly on enough hearts of who he desired to bring here that then the interference wouldn't be an issue when it became public. Because we expect it. We expect it. I expect the opposition from these people. I expect that opposition, although I don't want it. So then Nehemiah was godly. Nehemiah was wise. He was wise. He didn't share everything. And folks, you don't have to share everything. You need to share what God wants you to share. We need to be wise in what we do. We need to be wise in what we say because we do have enemies that oppose the work of Christ. They oppose Christ building his church through us and they will try to discourage us that we'll be sidelined. But Christ will build his church, but he may not build it with us if we're discouraged in sidelines. He'll use someone else, okay? And I don't want that to be the case. I want us to be willing and participating brothers and sisters who serve the Lord wholeheartedly. So then, these Jews were demoralized. They were discouraged. Nehemiah is very wise not to let the enemies get to him through letting it leak out, right? And so then, very clearly, he doesn't want to tip them off. So how are God's leaders to motivate uh, God's willing, and I keep saying that, willing yet discouraged servants to be about the difficult or overwhelming tasks? First of all, we need to expect opposition. Well, first of all, the the leaders need to be trusting the Lord themselves and stepping out in faith. Then we need to expect opposition. And the third, we need to analyze the specific work needed in light of opposition that's expected and wisely uh, go forth. And then we come to the point where we encourage the Lord's people to join in the good work. 
Indeed, at the right time, Nehemiah reiterates to Jerusalem the bad situation. He invites the Jews to rebuild, testifies of God's favor through the king, and they agree and begin the good work. Look at verse 17. Then I said to them, well, who's the them? Well, in context, it's not the foreign leaders or officials, officials. It's the end of 16, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. That's who it is. Then I said to them. So Nehemiah waits three days, not telling anyone, uh, doesn't tell anyone what's put on his heart, and after privately, secretly inspecting the wall, well, what does he do? He comes and he talks to the people that he wants to encourage to be about God's work. You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned by fire. Look, brothers and sisters, it's a bad scene. You see it? Jerusalem is desolate, or you could literally say it's a waste. It's a waste place, and its gates are burned with fire. And folks, notice uh, Nehemiah wisely, because it's in his heart, because he's a true believer, and he's a servant of the Lord, he identifies himself with them. You see the bad situation we are in. It's not you guys. Uh, I'm coming here to give you some advice. Of some, I'm going to give you some counsel and that. You know, uh, you're in a bad situation. I can help you on that. No, it's not. You see the bad situation that we are in. We, those who serve the Lord. We. And so he says here, you see it. And believe me, godly leaders are not separate from the people. They are among the people serving with them. And Nehemiah identifies with them. And he shares what's going on. So then, it's a bad scene. Notice what Nehemiah says. He invites the Jews who originally came to do this task, by the way. That's why they left their cushy lives in, in, uh, in uh, Persia. Uh, 13 years earlier, he says, middle of verse 17, Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Pretty simple invitation. Let us rebuild the wall together. Let's do this. Let's do this. And notice he gives the reason that we may no longer be a reproach. He gives a biblical reason, by the way. You see, the Jews were being reproached because their city was in shambles. It was the glorious city of the Lord who had identified his name with it. And it was in shambles, in ruins, the gates burned down, and they, as his people, were being reproached. You could probably hear the mockery. What kind of God do you have whose city is in rubble? Look at the gates burned down. Great God you have, nice city, Jews. You know, you could hear their mocking, right? So Nehemiah invites them to work with him. Let's do it. Let's do it together. It's an overwhelming task. But we as leaders need to reiterate uh, the reasons why we're doing it, biblically. That we no longer will be a reproach. We'll no longer be a reproach. Let's build together. But notice, Nehemiah doesn't stop here. After inviting the whole group there to work on this, he now shares his own testimony of how God helped him all the way. You see, leaders need to step out in faith. If the Lord is in it, and if he's there, there's going to be something to share. There's going to be something to share, how the Lord has worked in your life to prepare the way for you to then share these things for everyone to work together. And verse 18, he says, And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. I love this, because he doesn't say, I told them how the king gave us all this stuff. No. The hand of our God had been favorable. That is the key thing. 
God's favor had been upon us. His hand speaks of his working, his working, his protection, his might, right? How the hand of our God had been upon this. I told them, he told them what God had been doing, how God had been favorable, certainly through the king, certainly through how he got there. It was obvious. You could see the, 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 the Persian army officials and the, and the, and the wheels that they'd had for him or the, the, the stuff that they had. God's hand was upon him. There was no doubt about that. And notice he says, I also told them, he says here, what the king, words that the king had spoken to me. This is very important. He needed to encourage them that God was in it and God had opened the doors for them to step forward and do this. And so Nehemiah does so. And he desires to help them see that God's favor so that they will see that his favor will be on them as they're about his work. So then, obviously, he says the good hand of our God was on him. We see that. So he says, let us rebuild together. Let's do it. Let's do the task. Let's be about it. And they said, notice in the middle of, or end of verse 18, then they said, let us arise and build. Amen. Isn't that awesome? Let's do it. Let us arise and build. Let's do this. And folks, this was no mere lip service because Nehemiah puts in in advance as he's writing this past the time that it's been done. He's sharing back and how it happened. He writes in that they did do it. Look at this. So they put their hands to the good work. They actually went about it. They actually did it. They actually did it. So then in light of the overwhelming task, Nehemiah reiterated the biblical need. He invited the body to work with them and he testified of God's favor upon the work so far. So then how are leaders to motivate God's willing yet discouraged servants to be about difficult and overwhelming tasks? First of all, they need to lead by trusting the Lord and stepping out in faith in the very same area themselves. Secondly, they need to expect opposition yet trust the Lord. Third, they need to analyze the work wisely in light of that opposition and wisely respond. Then at the right time, the right time. They need to encourage the Lord's people to join his good work, revealing how the Lord's favor has been shown and already working in their life, preparing the groundwork for the work that he's inviting them and the Lord to do. And yes, uh, they began working. And as you begin working, we need to trust the Lord completely. Look here. We need to trust completely to accomplish the task through us. Now, Nehemiah is going to exhibit that trust. He's going to exhibit that trust in how he responds uh, to the bad guys. He's going to exhibit that as a leader of the trust that he has in the Lord. Verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Gershom the Arab, a new guy introduced here, Gershom the Arab, he's a bad guy, I heard it. Heard what? Well, heard that they were uh, choosing, they decided to rebuild the walls. They heard about it. The news got out, by the way. It gets out pretty quick here in, in uh, Judah. They heard it. He says here, uh, they mocked us. Or literally, it means to mock or deride. And they did it, literally, they mocked unto us. It's really personal. Straight at them. Straight at them. They mocked unto us, and they did it intensely, and they despised us. You know, it's the same word used in Isaiah 53.3, in which our Lord was despised and forsaken. They despised them. They despised them. Mocking and despising. And then notice they begin the attacks, the actual attacks. Verse 18, and said, what is this thing you are doing? 
Sound, sound them sounding official, right? As as uh, under uh, governors of uh, Persia, right? What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Well, that's a pretty serious accusation, by the way. Uh, if you rebel against the king, you lose your head. Uh, you don't rebel against the king. And it's a pretty serious accusation, and they're going to be using this to twist it around to try and get Nehemiah to sin, to mess up, to be frightened, to stop working. They're going to use this threat uh, over and over again. Are you rebelling against the king? And again, what would be the consequence? That would be death. But Nehemiah is not detoured by these false accusations. It doesn't scare him into ceasing and desisting. He doesn't go, well, hmm, maybe I shouldn't do this. Hmm. Um, maybe we should rethink this. He doesn't say that at all. Notice his answer to them. And in this answer, we see faith in the context of what Nehemiah knows God wants him to do. And by the way, we don't have a thing that we can say for sure God wants us to do in terms of the physical. But we have what we know God wants us to do in the spiritual. He wants us to be part of the body of Christ, building up the church, that he would be glorified. The church would be built up. And that's his goal. And he's going to build his church, with us or without us. We can know for sure that this is his will. Just like Nehemiah knew that this was his will back then. And so then, he says here, uh, and I answered and said to them, and this is the most of the, he's going to, very few answers later on, except for reproofs, by the way, as we're going to say. Uh, the God of heaven will give us success. Isn't that great? Hey, that's, that's understanding, and like for us in terms of the church, Christ is going to build his church. The gates of hell are not going to prevail. That's the answer. He's going to build his church. But here, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. Therefore, we're going to do it. We're not going to stop. We're going to do what God is calling us to do. You see, when Satan comes at us, we need to resist him firm in the faith. We need to trust the Lord. God is going to give us success, so we're going to do his work. I'm not going to fear. I'm not going to fear. And notice what he says here. He says here, and it also shows his, uh, his faith. Nehemiah makes it clear to those who would listen, especially us as we hear right now, that, he is that these people are those who oppose the Lord. They are not good guys. They are not part of the, the, the group of Jews there. Notice what he says. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. It's a pretty strong statement. You may portray yourselves as those Tobiah, Yah, you know, as my God. You may portray yourselves. You may get your house in the temple. You may smooth up with the, with the religious people. But you have no part of this. You have no portion or part in this work. You have no right or just reason to be doing this or no memorial because you're not his people. You're not his people. You see? Nehemiah exhibits great faith by declaring it is God who will give them success, therefore will build. And he exhibits great leadership, protecting the people by identifying the enemies clearly. You have no part, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. You're not part of this because you're not God's people. You're actually opposed. So, brother and sister, he exhibited great qualities in the Lord because he trusted the Lord. I don't think Nehemiah went to a leadership seminar for, for Christians or whatever it might be. He trusted the Lord he trusted him. He exhibited great faith in the Lord. So then, how are God's leaders to motivate God's willing yet possibly discouraged 
possibly stuck servants who are, are about to t- entertain an overwhelming task, how to do it. First of all, the leader needs to step out in faith in that very area and trust the Lord and let God's hand be upon him. Secondly, uh, there needs to be an understanding that there will be opposition. You need to trust the Lord in that. Third, you need to wisely analyze what needs to be done in light of that opposition. And fourth, you need to encourage the Lord's people to join the good work, revealing how the Lord has shown favor upon your life in the preparation of the groundwork for the work. And then you need to begin working. And lastly, as you're working, trust the Lord completely to accomplish his will through you and his people. And clearly identify your enemies for all to see. So then, we have a great example of leadership here in the Old Testament. Uh, these are instruction for those in whom the end of the ages have come. Now, again, I mentioned we don't have a... Uh, a we, God doesn't say, hey, um, you guys, I need you to rebuild these walls. Um, but he does have very clear instruction in his word that we are to be part of the body of Christ. We're to serve him. We are in his building project. Things are being built up upon the foundation of Christ that we would be a spiritual house that offers spiritual sacrifices. There is a project going on, and it is a spiritual project. So how does this apply to us? Well, boy, when I say this, I'm like, there's a lot of applications. I mean, it's just ringing true. If you know anything about this church, if you've been part of it, you know what's going on right now. There is a lot that applies. Um, Folks, the Lord has been leading me to come to South Carolina to start a new church here. And I have seen his hand of faithfulness over and over and over again in everything. So many ways. And I've shared these things with you, not to make you feel bad if you're not coming, but to share how God's great hand is upon this work for whoever he brings in this work. And I've encouraged the body, every single one who is able to come here, that there are opportunities to serve the Lord here. I've encouraged everyone. Everyone. And many have come to do so. Now, I understand there are some of you who cannot do so because of unbelieving spouses, medical condition, age, or whatever it might be. And I understand if the Lord is having you serve him there, then that's where you need to be. understand it. But maybe there are some of you uh, who are concerned. You're scared. You're intimidated. You don't want to change things. You don't want to rock the boat, whatever it is. Your life is fine where you are. Well, Remember what I shared in the beginning of this message. If you're unwilling to do whatever the Lord wants you to do, this message is not for you. But if you have come to the point where you say, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done, whatever you want me to do, I am open and willing, then this message is for you. Come and build and have that invitation. And if you can't and God has you there, be part of this ministry in Vancouver, building with us. Let's do it together let's do it together god is a gracious god who calls us to be involved in the body of christ for his glory and all of us need to be so and we need to analyze why we are and why if we're not why we're not and then if we're willing we need to allow god to use his people to motivate us to do what he wants us to do in the context of what he has said in his word in his word And what a great example we see in Nehemiah. What a great example. Um, What a blessing. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you so much for the example of Nehemiah. Lord, thank you that you will bring success to what you are doing through your people if we submit to you and obey you, Lord God, and follow you wholeheartedly. Lord, I pray for anyone in our body who is unwilling to give up their life, where they live, what they're doing, whatever it might be, Lord. It's not saying that people are unwilling if they don't come here, but I'm just saying you know the heart. Lord, if there's anyone unwilling, Lord, that you would work in their hearts and reveal their sin. Lord, but for those of us who are willing to do whatever you want us to do, whether it's here or there, Lord, I pray that you would use your word to motivate us to step out in faith, to be about your good work, because your good hand is upon us. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege you've given us to serve your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you in his precious name. Amen. Amen. And John, if we could sing our great Savior, that'd be great.